Chapter Twenty Three of Devlin the Barber by B. L. Fargin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Devlin was up and dressed when I awoke in the morning. I had not to go through the trouble of putting on my clothes, as I had not taken them off the previous night. It would not have surprised me to find that I had unconsciously sought repose in the usual way, or that I had risen in my sleep to undress. Nothing, indeed, would very much have surprised me, so strange had been my dreaming fancies. Naturally they all turned upon Devlin, and the case upon which I was engaged. I could easily write a chapter upon them, but I will content myself with briefly describing one of the strangest of them all. I was sitting in a chair, opposite a mirror, in which I saw everything that was passing in the room. Devlin was standing over me, dressing my hair. Suddenly I saw a sharp surgical instrument in his hand. "'That is not a razor,' I said, "'and I don't want to be shaved.' "'My dear sir,' remarked Devlin, with excessive politeness, "'what you want or what you don't want matters little.' With that he made a straight cut across the top of my head, and laid bare my brains. I saw them and every little cell in them quite distinctly. To think, he observed, as he peered into the cavities, that in this small compass should abide the passions, the emotions, the meanness, the noble aspirations, the sordid desires, the selfish instincts and the power to resist them, the sense of duty, the conscious deceits, the lust for power, the grovelling worship, the filthy qualities of animalism, the secret promptings, and all the motley mental and moral attributes which make a man. To think that from this small compass have sprung all that constitutes man's history, religion, ethics, the rise and fall of nations, music, poetry, law, and science! How grand, how noble does this man, who represents humankind, think himself! what works he has executed, what marvels discovered. But if the truth were known, he is a mere dabbler, who, out of his conceit, magnifies the smallest of molehills into the largest of mountains. He can build a bridge, but he cannot make a flower that shall bloom to-day and die to-morrow. He can destroy, but he cannot create. In the open pages of nature he makes the most trivial of discoveries, and he straightway writes himself up in letters of gold and builds monuments in his honour. The stars mock him, the mountains of snow look loftily down upon the pygmy, the gossamer fly which his eyes can scarcely see triumphs over his highest efforts. But he has invented for himself a supreme shelter for defeat and decay. Dear me! Dear me! I cannot find it! What are you looking for? I asked be kind enough to leave my brains alone, for he was industriously probing them with some sensitive instrument. I am looking for your grand invention, your soul. I am wondrously wise, but I have never yet been able to discover its precise locality. After some further search he shut up my head, so to speak, and my fancies took another direction. All these vagaries seemed to be tumbling over each other in my brain as I rose from my bed on the floor. "'Had a good night?' asked Devlin. "'If being asleep,' I replied, "'means having a good night, I have had it. But my head is in a whirl nevertheless.' "'Keep it cool if you can,' said Devlin, "'for what you have to go through. 
You will find water and soap inside. He pointed to the little closet adjoining his room, and there I found all that was necessary for my toilet. I had just finished when Fanny knocked at the door. "'It's all right, Fanny,' I cried. "'You can get breakfast ready.' "'And don't forget,' added Devlin, "'the extra rasher for me. How is dear Lemon?' That she did not reply, and was heard beating a hasty retreat, caused a broad grin to spread over Devlin's face. "'I have provided,' he said, "'for that worthy creature something of an entertaining, not to say enthralling nature, which she can dilate upon to the last hour of her life. And yet she is not grateful.' We went down to breakfast, and there I was offered an opportunity of verifying the subtle likeness in Devlin's face to the portrait of Lemon on the wall, the evil-looking bird in its glass case, and the stone figure, half monster, half man, on the mantel-shelf. "'There is a likeness,' said Devlin pleasantly, "'between my works and me, and if you will attribute me with anything human, you can attribute it to a common human failing. It springs from the vanity and the weakness of man that he can evolve only that which is within himself.' Nowhere is that vanity and weakness more conspicuous than in Genesis, in the very first chapter, my dear sir, where man himself has had the audacity to write that God created man in his own image. My dear Mrs. Lemon, you have excelled yourself this morning. This rasher is perfect, and your cooking of these eggs to the infinitesimal part of a second is a marvel of art. Fanny did not open her lips to him and the meal passed on in silence, so far as she was concerned. I made a good breakfast, and Devlin expressed approval of my appetite. "'It will strengthen you,' he said, "'for what is before you.' Fanny looked up in alarm, and Devlin laughed. I may mention that the first thing I did when I came downstairs was to run to the nearest newspaper shop and purchase copies of the morning papers. "'Is there anything new concerning the murder?' asked Devlin. Fanny waited breathlessly for my reply. "'Nothing,' I said. "'Have any arrests been made?' "'None.' "'Of course,' observed Devlin sarcastically. "'The police are on the track of the murderer.' "'There is something to that effect in the papers.' "'Fudge,' said Devlin. Breakfast over, Devlin said he would go up to his room for a few minutes, and bade me be ready when he came down. Alone with Fanny, she asked me whether I would like to see Lemon, adding that it would do him a power of good. "'Is he any better?' I asked. "'I really think he is,' she replied. "'What I told him last night about your taking up the case was a comfort to him, though he ain't easy in his mind about you. He is afraid that Devlin will get hold of you as he did of him.' "'He will not, Fanny. We shall get along famously together.' She shook her head. I failed to convince her, as I failed to convince Mr. Lemon, that I should prove a match for their lodger. Lemon presented a ludicrous picture, sitting up in bed with an old-fashioned nightcap on. "'Don't go with him, sir,' he whispered, to the twisted cow. "'I shall go with him,' I said, wherever he proposes to take me. I could not help smiling at Lemon's expression of melancholy as I made this statement. He dared not give utterance to his fears of what my ultimate destination would be if I continued to keep company with Devlin. When that strange personage came down I was ready for him, and we went out together. Fanny, looking after us from the street door, 
shaking, I well knew, in her inward soul. Devlin made himself exceedingly pleasant, and the comments he passed on the people we met excited my admiration and increased my wonder. He seemed to be able to read their characters in their faces, and although I would have liked to combat his views, I did not venture to oppose my judgment to his. What struck me particularly was that he saw the evil in men, not the good. Not once did he give man or woman credit for the possession of good qualities. All was mean, sordid, grasping, and selfish. He told me that we should have to walk four miles to his place of business. "'I enjoy walking,' he said, "'and the only riding I care for is on the top of an omnibus through squalid streets. You get peeps into garrets and one-room habitations. Gifted with the power of observation, you can see rare pictures there.' On our road I stopped at a post-office, and sent a telegram of three words to my wife. All is well. Our course lay in the direction of Westminster. We crossed the bridge and turned down a narrow street. Chapel Street. Halfway down the street Devlin paused and said, Behold our establishment. It was a poor and common house, and had it not been for a barber's pole sticking out from the doorway, and a fly-flown cardboard in the parlour window, on which was written, Barber and Hairdresser, All Styles, Lowest Charges. I should not have supposed that a trade was carried on therein. As we entered the passage, a woman came forward and handed Devlin a key. He thanked her, unlocked the parlour door, and we went in. The fittings in this room, which I saw at a glance was the shop in which the shaving and hairdressing were done, were entirely out of keeping with the poor tenement in which it was situated. The walls were lined with fine mirrors, there were three luxurious barber's chairs, the washstands were of marble, and the appliances for shampooing perfect. "'You would hardly expect it,' observed Devlin. "'I would not,' I replied. "'It is my idea,' he said. It rivals the West End establishments, and for skill I would challenge the world, if I were desirous of courting publicity. Then the charges. One-sixth those of Truefit. I shave for a penny, cut for another penny, shampoo for another. But only those can be attended to who hold my tickets. I was compelled to adopt this plan, otherwise I should have been overwhelmed with customers. It enables me to choose them. When I see a likely man, one who is ripe, and in whom I discern possibilities which commend themselves to me, I say, Oblige me, sir, by accepting this ticket of admission, and having given him a taste of my skill, he comes again. I have quite a connection. He accompanied these last words with a strange smile. What part do you propose to assign to me in the business? I asked. A part to which you will not object. That of looker-on not from this room, but that, pointing to the back room. The panels of the door, you will observe, are of ground glass. Sitting within there, you can see all that passes in this room without being yourself seen. If you will keep quiet, no one will suspect that you are in hiding. For the life of me, I said, I cannot guess what good my sitting in there will do. I do not suppose you can, but learn from me that I do nothing without a motive. I do not care to be questioned too closely. The promise I have made to you will be kept if you do not thwart it. You may see something that will surprise you. 
I say may, because I have not the power to entirely rule men's movements. But I think it almost certain he will pay me a visit this morning. He? I cried. Who? The man whose thoughts I read on Friday, with respect to the girl who was murdered on that night. I started. If Devlin spoke the truth, and if the man came to his shop this morning, I should be in possession of a practical clue which would lead me to the goal I wished to reach. He comes regularly, continued Devlin, on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. This is his day. Do you know his name? I inquired in great excitement. I did not, replied Devlin, the last time I saw him. How should I know it now? Nor where he lives? Nor where he lives. I must obey you, I suppose, I said. It will be advisable, and you must obey me implicitly. Deviate by a hair's breadth from what I require of you, and I withdraw my promise, which now exists in full integrity. Decide. I have decided. I will remain in that room. There is another point upon which I must insist positively. From that room you do not stir until I bid you. In that room you do not speak unless you receive a cue from me. Agreed? Agreed. On your honour? On my honour. Good. Now you can retire. You will find books in there to amuse you if you get wearied with your watch. He opened the door for me, and closed it upon me. He had spoken correctly. Through the ground glass I could see everything in the shop, and I took his word for it that I could not myself be seen. Scarcely had a minute passed before a customer entered. Devlin, who, while he was arguing with me, had taken off his coat and put on a linen jacket of spotless white, behaved most decorously. His manner was deferential without being subservient, respectful without being familiar. The man was shaved by Devlin, and then his head was brushed by machinery, which I had forgotten to mention was fixed in the shop. There was a caressing motion about Devlin's shapely hands, which could not but be agreeable to those who sought his tonsorial aid, and his conversation, judging from the expression on his customer's face, must have been amusing and entertaining. The customer took his departure, and another, appearing as he went out, was duly attended to. This went on until eleven o'clock by my watch, and nothing had occurred of a special interest to me. Devlin was kept pretty busy, but although his time was fully employed, the business at such prices could not have been remunerative, especially when it was considered that the fitting up of the shop must have cost a pretty sum of money, and that the profits of the concern had to be divided between two persons, Mr. Lemon and himself. It was not till past eleven that my attention was more than ordinarily attracted by Devlin's behaviour, the difference in which perhaps no one except myself would have particularly noticed. A man of the middle class entered and took his seat. He wore a beard and moustache, and although I could not hear what he said, he spoke in so low a tone, I judged correctly that he instructed Devlin to shave his face bare. Devlin proceeded to obey him, and clipped and cut, and finally applied his razor until not a vestige of hair was left on the man's face. That being done, Devlin cut this customer's hair close, and then used his brushes, and as his hands moved about the man's head there was, if I may so describe it, a feline, insinuating expression in them which aroused my curiosity. 
I thought of the singular dream I have described, and it appeared to me that all the while Devlin was employed over his customer the brains of the man sitting so quietly in the chair were figuratively exposed to his view, and that he was reading the thoughts which stirred therein. When the man was gone there was a peculiar smile upon Devlin's face, and I observed that he laughed quietly to himself. There happened to be no one in the shop to claim Devlin's attention, and I, who was impatiently waiting for some sign from Devlin, pertinent to the secret purpose to which both he and I were pledged, expected it to be given now. For the circumstance of the man having been shaved bare, which so altered his appearance that I should not otherwise have known that the person who entered the shop was the same person who left it, was to me so suspicious that in my anxiety and agitation I connected it with the murder of poor Lizzie Melladew, arguing that the man had effected this disguise in himself for the purpose of escaping detection. But Devlin made no sign, and did not even look towards the glass door. Other customers came in, Devlin was busy again. Twelve o'clock, half-past twelve, one o'clock, and still no indication of anything in connection with my task with a feeling of intense disappointment, and beginning to doubt whether I had not allowed myself to be duped, I replaced my watch in my pocket, and had scarcely done so before my heart was beating violently at the appearance of a gentleman whom I little expected to see in Devlin's shop. This gentleman was no other than Mr. Kenneth Dowsett, George Carton's guardian. End of chapter 23